0: Day, my fellow gemstones, <laughs> <laughs> you'll listen to another episode of the Gems a History podcast. I'm your host, <laughs> got a yeah, yeah, in there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Enough of that, slip it a little bit. Enough of that, enough of that. So, I am your co host, Evan Roosh, and joined as always, we have Jacob Shop. Hi, Evan. My goodness, who, ah. I think that's probably the final time I'll uh, I'll intro <laughs> the show. <laughs> I don't know. I thought it was pretty good. Ah. I mean,
1: we got like four vaguely recognizable European dialects in there. So. Honestly, I think
0: we had what was supposed to be British. We had a little bit of Sweden in there for sure. Irish, and then maybe a fourth unidentified one still to be still be <laughs> to, still to be discovered tribe of Europe.
1: It's like the. Have uh, you ever seen the video where it's like, oh. Egyptologists have finally figured out what a mummy might have sounded like. (laughs) It's like that video. (laughs) How's it going?
0: Pretty good. Pretty good. So we're recording this a couple days before the Super Bowl and uh, just very excited. Can't wait to hopefully watch the Bengals win. Don't get many, many man crushes in my day, but Joe Burrow just seems like a cool dude.
1: I've been telling everyone, like, this is one of the first Super Bowls that I can remember where I would be happy with either team winning, honestly. That's fair. Because Stafford, I feel like, deserves the Super Bowl, but Joe Burrow is just kind of awesome. Right. And the Bengals haven't been to the playoffs in like since NAM. Right. Literally. (laughs) Quite literally, yeah. So, yeah, they kind of deserve it too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But it should be a good game. Should we actually record two versions of that? Like, congratulations. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then, like, a Um, computer voice. Bengals for winning the (laughs) super bowl i'll put it in in post yeah thank you if you just like wire that in also
1: this episode comes out on valentine's day so congratulations for making it to the worst holiday of the year
0: (laughs) right it's very true very much a hallmark holiday oh yeah
1: it's just a money grab for sure
0: oh yeah and it just gets me every year
1: well are you excited for talking about a loving family that is not doing so hot. That will definitely
0: all live forever and yes, ever. Yes, nothing
1: bad will ever happen. Yes, they'll just chill out in the woods. Just disregard the last 20 minutes of the podcast you listened to last week.
0: Right. The government won't bother them at all. No. And nothing eventful will happen.
1: The end. Mm-hmm. Roll credits. All right. can you want to give them our social medias? Or- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you can find us on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, we are back with uh, the finale. On our series on Ruby Ridge. This will be part three. So if you've listened to the first two parts, I bet you're excited to hear the end of the story. I know it's, it, it was exciting writing out the notes, but this third section of notes, like, kind of hit me harder, like, the actual gravity of the whole story. Because when I was reading the book, you know, you're just kind of reading through, taking it all in, and then retyping it all out, it kind of sank in a little more, like, how this actually would have affected a family. The psychological
0: damage alone for the kids, Yeah, I can't imagine. It's
1: crazy. But now, like, and Sarah still comes out and talks about it, like, all the time. She's in a ton of interviews and stuff. Mm -hmm. She's, like, the only one, though. So, props to her. But, yeah, I cannot imagine going through this entire ordeal at the age of 14 or 16 or however old these kids were
0: my biggest problem when I was 14 was oh no I have knee now oh, <laughs> like, oh, oh
1: no Mark and Evan or Mark and Jacob are coming over they're gonna
0: drink all of my chocolate milk
1: right yeah <laughs> <laughs> but yeah should we uh hop right into uh the end of the story on Ruby Ridge you know what I say let's dive see see where the Weaver family's at yep see where they end up So, on our last episode, we left the Weaver family holed up in their cabin on Ruby Ridge. Uh, It was late August of 1992. The U.S. Marshals had just set up their surveillance teams to keep tabs on the family and monitor the comings and goings. By the 20th of August, a hand-picked team of U.S. Marshals, led by Arthur Roderick and Dave Hunt, were making their way up the mountain to set up for updated surveillance. And they split into two groups, one heading towards the Weaver's driveway and the other heading towards a hillside to overlook the cabin. After the surveillance was finished, the Weaver's dog, Stryker, was alerted to something, and he tracked the Marshals and cornered them. The Weavers and the Marshals had a confrontation leading to a shootout that left 14-year-old Samuel Weaver dead, and one of the Marshals, Billy Deegan, shot as well. And that's where we're going to pick this story back up.
0: Yeah, highly suggest, of course, if you're listening to part three before the first two parts, I mean, kind of wild of you, very bold. But uh, very much suggest running the first two back if you're kind of unclear on what happened. Again, it was just kind of a lot of miscommunication in that aspect and oh, two, different, two different versions of the story as well.
1: Yeah, and the miscommunication is only going to get like multiplied and stacked on top of each other.
0: So, And some of it just makes you very sad. Yeah, <laughs> or very time. upset. <laughs> a little bit of both.
1: You, you can def- by the end of this, you'll definitely be able to see why this is a rallying cry for anti-government movements. Yeah, you're not going to like Uncle Sam after this one. <laughs> So, one way or another, shots had been fired. Depends on which story you want to believe. Billy Deegan was dead at this point. Efforts to save him did no good. But also dead was 14-year-old Sammy Weaver. And when Kevin got back to the cabin, he told the family that Sammy was indeed dead. And at this point, the family, very understandably, lost it. Vicky started yelling and crying. Randy was upset that he didn't stay by his son. Sarah was mad that she didn't go down with him. The whole family's just kind of in denial, in shock. They're in mourning. And Vicky, being the strongest member of the family, says, we're going to get his body. So the whole family marches down the hill and finds Sammy Weaver face down in the grass near the Y split where the confrontation had happened. And Randy went over and picked up the not-yet-90-pound boy's body and carried him back to the guest shed on the property. They stripped him, cleaned his body, and then wrapped him up in a sheet and left him in the shed or guest house on the property. And then they went back inside the cabin and sobbed and waited for the marshals to come finish off the rest of the family, which is what they thought was going to happen.
0: Yeah, going back, just imagining going back and getting the body. I mean, they still had to be extremely like they're already completely torn apart they just lost their 14 year old son or brother but they also still had to be like on high alert because they definitely assumed that the marshals were still coming for them right they had no idea where the marshals were at this point and so like they're just so distraught (laughs) losing a loved one but also had to still like have guns on them to go get a 14 year old's body
1: and sarah said in an interview that i watched like We knew that they were watching us, like we knew they were surveilling us this Mm -hmm. whole time, but we didn't think that they were that close this whole time. So like this whole thing just came as such a shock to the whole family. So meanwhile, while the family was grieving and recovering Sammy's body, the Marshals had regrouped. Dave Hunt and the other two men that he was with were coming back down from the hillside and they found Larry Cooper and Art Roderick doing all they could to save Billy Deegan, but he was way too far gone at this point. So they needed to call for backup. Dave Hunt, being one of the only ones who knew the woods, he took one of the other men named Joe Thomas with him, and they went back to the Rouse property where they had set up their base, and he called 911 and requested immediate backup. Hunt then called Marshall's headquarters in Washington, D.C., and told a man named Tony Perez, who was the leader of the enforcement division, that Billy Deegan was dead, And others were still on the Hill, but he hadn't heard any more gunfire for a while. So Perez immediately started notifying all the other agencies. But as the game of telephone got passed down the line, the message got warped. And instead of the Hill being quiet now, the message became that the marshals on the Hill were still under fire and were pinned down. And this small miscommunication would have pretty tragic consequences.
0: Right, like the authorities thought that they were in a war zone. quote like there was just and again like the public uh information that was available through the magazines and newspapers these people had a fortress on the hill right and they were also white supremacists and neither of those things were completely true and they
1: had all of these guns right their property might have been booby-trapped like there's just Mm -hmm. so many misconstrued facts
0: they think that that mountaintop is basically the movie rambo yeah they, they and just, like Pete Weaver has a <laughs> bandana on with just a machine gun in both arms.
1: And this family is just like, we just wanted to be away, well, away from everybody. Right. Yeah. So. They just
0: wanted to just legit want nothing to do with the world.
1: Yes. So the Idaho crisis response team showed up after his call for help and Hunt told them that there is four other marshals up on the hill and told them how to get there. But when headquarters told Hunt to hold off on the rescue until more forces arrived under the assumption that these men on the hill were still under fire, the marshals with Dave Hunt told headquarters that they could go to hell because they were sick of sitting on their hands and Mm -hmm. waiting for these men. Because the guys on the hill are staying with Billy Deegan and they can't get his body down on their own because at this point it's starting to rain. So trying to drag a over 200-pound man while also trying not to damage his body any more than it already is. It's just not going to happen. With
0: And they were probably doing, like, they were on high alert as well, like, thinking the weavers were going to come yeah. at right. them.
1: So they have to constantly watch their back while also trying to carry another human being down the mountain. So right. <laughs> not an easy task. So by 4.30, the three men with Deegan's body attempted to move him down the hill, but it was too heavy and wet. And meanwhile, the Weavers headed back in the cabin for good and had no intentions of surrendering. So the rest of the Marshals went back into town with Mark Jurgensen. De- and Mark Jurgensen, if you remember from part two, was the man who was supposed to set up on property behind the Weavers to mm-hmm. kind of be a just there as a safeguard in case Randy slipped up so that they could catch him. So while Deegan's body was taken away after the... Re- reinforcements came the rest of the marshals went to town so they took their guns with them when they arrived at the er because they weren't sure if supporters of the weaver family would come storm the hospital which i don't know how anyone would have gotten news that their son was dead since they didn't have a phone so i don't know i i mean good to take the precaution but also you're just bringing a bunch of loaded guns into a hospital
0: yeah probably the legit the very much the one spot where you're not supposed to have <laughs> yeah, any you could just any You could
1: post people outside. I think you'll be okay. Right, right. So they moved back to their condo after they had visited the ER and got some food and stuff because they hadn't eaten like all day. And they unloaded their guns and counted the bullets in each of their guns to see how many times each of the men had shot. So the three men, Dave Hunt and the two with him on the hill, obviously had not shot. Roderick had shot once. Cooper had shot two three-round bursts and stated that Billy Deegan hadn't shot at all. But upon checking Deegan's gun, there were seven rounds missing. So we're already starting to get some misinformation from the people that were at the event. And I granted, this is a high-stress environment, so mm-hmm. you're not going to remember everything perfectly, and everyone is shooting. But this will come into fact be a factor later once the trial happens and they're trying to explain what actually happened versus what they say happened so
0: right you may not think like that's such an important point now just us talking about like how many rounds each man shot but i mean it like jacob mentioned it's definitely gonna come up later
1: yeah i mean because you have one side saying that no one shot the dog and that one guy didn't shoot at all and now you're seeing that half of that story is already falling apart Mm -hmm. and then the, the family's like well everyone was shooting so we'll see what happens with that but yeah, it's, it's
0: a mess. That's how you foreshadow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but now this is where the FBI gets involved. So Richard Rogers, who was the head of the FBI's prestigious hostage rescue team, was now on a plane to Idaho at the same time. The miscommunication had led him and the others at the Department of Justice to overestimate the danger of the situation. Again, he thought that the Marshals were pinned down in basically a Rambo-type war zone. And that Randy had booby-trapped the entire property with grenades and bombs. And if you do remember, I guess the only thing that kind of sticks out to me, he was a Green Beret. He did have practical knowledge to make those devices. But I believe in Dave Hunt's initial report that we talked about in episode two, it was confirmed that there wasn't anything like that up there. Also, how was this man going to get bombs? That was all
1: martial information. Right. That's right. this is where the agencies not communicating mm-hmm. with each other really bites them in the ass. Right. Because right. like the ATF was doing their own private thing, which mm-hmm. is how Randy initially got arrested and sent to jail. Now the marshals are doing their own thing based on like rudimentary information from the ATF. Mm-hmm. But they're not communicating with the FBI. And now the FBI just hears about all of this and is like, well, we're like learning on the fly in the matter of 24 hours pretty
0: much. Right, and that comes very much into play on how they handled the case. So, like Jacob mentioned, all that miscommunication, this actually led Richard Rogers to completely rewrite the rules of engagement for this case,
1: which is just unprecedented. Like, yeah, never has happened before or after this. Like- yep.
0: And so, usually, the rules of engagement are very defensive and states that FBI agents should only employ deadly force when human life is in danger. So, this is what it the rules of engagement typically are agents are not to use deadly force against any person except as necessary in self-defense or the defense of another when they have reason to believe they or another are in danger of death or grievous bodily harm now that got changed to if any adult in the compound meaning the weaver compound which is a 12 by 24 air, shack. got
1: quotes, uh, compound.
0: Right, way to, way to sell it. It's literally a shack with a menstruation shed. Yeah, made of plywood. <laughs> yeah. But if any adult in the compound is observed with weapons after the surrender announcement is made, deadly force can and should be used to neutralize the individual.
1: Remember after the surrender announcement. Yes. Remember those words.
0: That is very key. Rogers faxed it back to headquarters and supposedly Larry Potts Head of the FBI Criminal Division gave them the A OK.
1: Ah, good old Larry Potts. What a piece of shit he is! Yeah, but very frustrating. It's just insane how they took the rules of engagement, which like are so defensive based. Like, if you're in danger, then you can take necessary action, which is how most agencies work. And they literally just flipped it on its head. And they're like, if you see him, just
0: shoot. Right, they changed it to basically being open season.
1: Yeah, it's shoot on site.
0: Right, and that's like government agencies Yeah, against citizens. This is
1: a government-mandated shoot-to-kill mm-hmm. without prompting.
0: Don't trust your government, kids. <laughs> <laughs> uh, meanwhile, back at Ruby Ridge, a man named Gene Glenn had taken over the situation for the FBI. But the main issue was that nobody at the new command post in Homicide Meadow... Had interviewed the deputies who had actually been in the gun battle initially.
1: Which is just insane to me.
0: You think you want to talk to those guys? Yeah.
1: The, those guys went to the hospital for good reason, just because they needed to get checked
0: out and stuff. But then you just like totally are just like, ah, we don't need them. Yeah. It's like, ah, yeah, who cares about their opinion? They're the only, uh, they've only been there for months on end, have all the surveillance footage. We don't know the property at all. Yeah. I, <laughs> Oh, man. They probably stepped on the dog by accident. Well, they do a lot. We're stepping on <laughs> the dog. <laughs> but, um, when the hostage rescue team arrived, Glenn mistakenly told them that the marshals were still pinned down and that they would be continuing the firefight. A mistake that would bear the cost of one more life. Deputies set up a roadblock on a bridge at the base of Ruby Creek. A chef from Switzerland, Lawrence Kaduff. Kaduff. I Kaduff, don't know. <laughs> I always assume, like, you know. I have no idea. Uh, Who moved to town just six weeks earlier to buy a bar slash restaurant and motel, now saw armored personnel carriers, or APCs, which were essentially mini tanks rolling through town. This mini... 200-person town, 500-person town. Yeah, 500% yeah town. literally
1: this like sleepy little town in the middle of the hills in Idaho. And this guy just moved here from Switzerland <laughs> to buy this inn. Yeah. And now he's just like, oh, God, what's happening?
0: Yeah, and he was genuinely shocked that the U.S. government would use this amount of force, like literal mini-tanks, on its own citizens, regardless like if they had shot in a federal agent this, or not. Cause... This
1: guy, honestly, is one of the... Like, the most tragic side stories in this whole case, and we'll mm. I'll get into it towards the end of the story, but, like, he just gets thrown into all of this, yeah. and he's such a nice guy about mm-hmm. all of it, too, but, oh, man, he just, after this is all done, it just turns into a really bad story for him, too. So, Right.
0: My uh, partial Swedish accent at the beginning of the, uh, yeah. it was all for all for Lawrence. <laughs> um, but, yeah, he was obviously very upset that this was all happening. He wasn't the only one, as well. There were a multitude of protesters that lined up at the roadblock and started yelling chants like baby killer to the federal agents as they came in and out.
1: Yeah. And even the Grider family, who had fallen out with the Weavers a little bit since they had last talked. Like, I believe one day, I think it was Randy, like, showed up at the Grider property. And he, or no, Grider came up to the Weaver property. And Weaver came out with a gun and, like, said, like, get off my property, Mm -hmm. basically. So they weren't really on good terms, but now, like, everyone is showing up saying, like, they did literally nothing wrong. I don't know why you're all here.
0: Right, and that's, like, the neighbors that actually know them. Yeah. Dave Hunt's group was finally interviewed by the FBI, but even then, they weren't asked to brief the hostage rescue team on what happened. The final rules of engagement had been sent to headquarters, which Potts claims he never saw. And the man he left in charge said he couldn't get past the first page of because of how dumb it sounded. (laughs) Which is- <laughs> so basically they were given they were given what they were supposed to do and one Potts who gave the AOK yeah, said and- he never got them and then Gene Glenn
1: No, this is a different guy at headquarters. So oh, this sorry, is all happening you. in Washington.
0: Oh, right, um, right, right, right. Yeah, right, cuz yeah.
1: Larry Potts isn't on the scene at all. So he's right, getting right. these facts back and forth saying he didn't see him. Mm-hmm. And the guy that Larry Potts supposedly left in charge while he was gone that guy said he read it and he just like couldn't even make it through the first page because this is he's like, this is ridiculous. Right, right, right. So
0: But now the FBI fully believed that they could shoot any adult that they saw with a gun, as long as it didn't endanger the children. But the problem was the adults were almost always carrying guns. Like and, we talked about the percentages last yeah, episode. And
1: now they're under attack, so obviously they're gonna have guns. They're
0: gonna keep that thing on them. Yeah. Upon seeing these new rules, a lot of the FBI agents actually said, You've got to be kidding. Yeah. Which is the natural response to something like that. Right. Getting orders from your superiors, a government agency, that you can, it's a okay to shoot these yeah. US citizens. But to this day, some of these guys still say, like, this
1: was like the worst fugitive situation we've ever seen. It's like, mm-hmm. I don't think so, but sure.
0: They made it into the worst few (laughs) days.
1: They they messed this one up. Yeah. So the whole night after the shootout, the Weaver family was understandably a distraught mess. Like I said, Randy was upset at himself for not being by Sammy's side when the shooting began. Vicky sobbed. She was cursing the people who took their son, saying that they wouldn't separate the rest of the family. And the whole time, airplanes and helicopters are flying overhead. So they know that people are coming. Mm -hmm. And at this point, it's just a matter of time. So... Nobody got any sleep and they're pretty much waiting for law enforcement now to come up to the hill, apologize through a bullhorn and pretty much say like, we're sorry we shot your son, but Randy and Kevin, you guys need to come with us now. Yeah. Which, good luck. <laughs> right. And I mean, you're talking about got a, a family that was on the hill that Dave Hunt was told not to go visit directly even before anyone shot. So imagine now how much more tense that's going to be. Mm -hmm. But that never happened. So the family actually came outside of the cabin the next day for very limited time on Saturday, August 22nd. Vicky and Sarah literally ran to go get food from the root cellar, and all of the curtains on the cabin itself were drawn because every step outside of the cabin was risking their lives. They had already lost one, and they thought any step outside, we could get shot. Mm Mm-hmm. So they decided they were going to hold out in the cabin as a family with their guns loaded as long as they could. And Kevin, of course, was going to stay with them as well, because at this point he knew that there was no way he was getting a fair trial after what had happened. So while the family was preparing to hunker down in the cabin, the hostage rescue team was getting ready to move snipers into positions around the Weaver property. And even with the new rules of engagement, none of the men questioned it, because they weren't paid to ask questions, they were just there to do the job that they were ordered to do. So, 11 snipers moved on foot around 5 p.m. on that Saturday, among them a man named Lon Horiuchi. These men all agreed that if they saw Randy and Kevin outside the cabin together, they would wait until they had the chance to shoot both of them at once, because they knew that they wouldn't be able to get the other one out of the house if they only took one down. So, Horiuchi moved into position about 200 meters from the cabin with binoculars, a radio, sniper rifle, and an M14 rifle, just in case he needed another weapon, because they were still worried that other white nationalists were going to come support the Weavers, which at this point is a valid claim, because now people are seeing what's actually going on.
0: Right, right. But just think about that, 11 snipers. Yeah,
1: for a family of, it's six at this point, and one of them is a 10-month-old toddler. Yes. So... (laughs) I don't think you really have to be that.
0: It just goes to just to kind of drive the point home of how the rules of engagement are completely changed. Yeah. Like 11 snipers. That's just unheard of.
1: Yeah. And the, if you watch any footage of Homicide Meadow during all of this, it's li- it literally looks like a war zone operation. Mm-hmm. There's giant green and army canvas tents. There's like big transport trucks for troops, like other like civilian vehicles lined up it's there's hundreds of people milling about all in their uniforms ready to go
0: yeah all in the sleepy little town
1: so around 6 p.m one of the dogs began to bark so sarah comes out of the cabin to make sure that it was clear for her dad before he comes out and then randy and kevin followed her out randy checked around the perimeter while kevin grabbed some flashlight batteries that he had dropped And after the dog stopped barking and the perimeter was cleared, they began to head back to the cabin. But Randy said that he had to go see Sammy one more time in the shed. So he headed to the uh, birthing shed, and as he reached to open the shed, a shot rang out. Randy felt a bullet pass through his upper arm and splinter the wood of the shed door. Now they were under attack again. Sarah was upset that she wasn't shielding her dad like she was supposed to. She was literally supposed to be a human shield for her father
0: mm-hmm.
1: at 16 years old. Yeah. Lon Horiuchi had missed his first shot, which was intended to kill who he thought was Kevin Harris, but was actually Randy. Immediately, Randy, Sarah, and Kevin began running back to the cabin in that order. Sarah stayed as close to Randy as she could in case a second shot was coming. Vicky swung the door open, facing the direction that the shot had come from. She ushered the three in, with Randy and Sarah jumping in first, and Kevin leaping in after them, trying to push them out of the way so that he could get in. Horiuchi watched from his scope, expecting the other snipers to fire after he had rang out his first shot. He calculated the speed of Kevin as he ran to the cabin, gave his shot a bit of lead, and pulled the trigger again. And at this point, he's got a door where he can't see what's behind it. The second shot shattered the eye-level window on the door, but the curtain wouldn't allow him to see if he hit his target. He did, but he also hit an unintended target as well. Inside the cabin, Randy looked back into the doorway, and himself, Sarah, and Kevin had all burst through that door moments before. It was all quiet for a moment, and then they began to scream. Vicki Weaver with toddler Elishaba in her arms, was on her knees with her head laying on the floor. Jess Walters describes her position as being folded over like a tent. She was motionless, but she held so tightly to Elishaba that Randy had to pry the child out of his wife's arms. Vicki Weaver, while standing behind the door, had been hit directly in the head by Lon Horiuchi's second shot. Her head looked like it, as if it had exploded her jaw blown half off and blood coming out from everywhere. The family checked Alicia, who was covered in Vicky's blood, but she wasn't injured. Vicky wasn't the only one hit. Kevin Harris, falling in front of Sarah as they entered, had also been hit by the same bullet. It fragmented into his chest, but most of the shot lodged in his shoulder, and he was losing a lot of blood. Rachel and Sarah were sprayed with blood from both their mother and Kevin. The family pulled Vicky's body back into the cabin, closed the door, and began to weep.
0: (sighs) Yeah, I don't even know how to comment on that.
1: I had to stop writing my notes after that and take like two hours to like (laughs) refresh because type. that's where I like started actually like having a physical reaction while I was typing. Like my my body was shaking.
0: I mean, that's their mom. It's very intense. (laughs) Yeah, like that's... That's their mom that they just saw her her just get shot in the head,
1: and their adrenaline is so high right now, like they just burst into the door, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden you look back and you just see your mom crumpled over on the floor. It's yeah. just
0: that's stuff def- like could never imagine yeah, it's really at the, at a loss for words, just even reading about it, even doing research about it beforehand. it's unbelievable. The thought of being covered in, like, your mother's blood. Right. And like, the toddler was, I don't want to be too graphic, but, like, the toddler was just covered yeah. in it.
1: it. it, like, it's one thing to watch a video and hear, like, oh, Vicki Weaver was shot. But it's another thing to kind of, like, think about that scene. And it's just, like, yeah. that's your mom. Yeah. Like, the he- like, not just any mom, either. That's, like, your idol. That's the head of your family.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I not 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 good, kids. No, but
1: yeah. So Lon Horiuchi, two shots, one kill, unintended, Mm -hmm. and he had missed his intended two targets. Well, hit one, but Mm -hmm. unintentionally. And remember, after the surrender announcement is made, they were supposed to start shooting.
0: Mm -hmm. It was around six p.m. Shots had been fired and the FBI knew that they still hadn't identified themselves or given the order to the Weavers to surrender. So all these shots and the death occurred before a surrender order occurred. Richard Rogers was flying over the area to get a better lay of the land when he heard that one of his men in the HRT had taken shots. He landed and immediately hopped into an armored personal carrier to head up to the cabin and get the line of communication started with the Weavers. By 645, Rogers, along with Fred Lansley, had made their way up to the house. Over a bullhorn, Fred Lansley, who was the FBI negotiator assigned to this case, called for Randy or one of the children to come out and discuss how they could negotiate a surrender, but they were not getting any answers. Shocker. They were a little little upset.
1: Yeah. And at this point... The FBI doesn't know, one, that Sammy's dead. Yep. And now they don't know that, two, that the second shot had hit anyone.
0: Yep. So over the bullhorn, Lansley, the FBI negotiator, called out, Vicky, maybe one of the children could run out and grab the telephone. They didn't know Vicky was dead, and the family thought the FBI was going to just take them out one by one.
1: That's not going to be the first time he does this.
0: Oh, no, he does it quite, quite a few times. After returning to Homicide Meadow, Rogers pulled Lan Horiuchi aside to talk about what had happened. The sniper told him that he saw one of the men getting into position by the shed to shoot at a helicopter that was flying overhead, and so he took the shot, missing when the target had moved. He then took another shot, but did not see the result. He also said that he was surprised that none of the other snipers took shots after he did, but Rogers was more surprised by the fact that one of his elite snipers had missed his shots Twice.
1: And I watched an interview with one of the other guys that was assigned to this case as a sniper. And he was talking about it. And Lon Horiuchi hasn't come out and talked about this because he's still on, I believe he's still with the hostage rescue team. So he's under kind of an anonymity order. So he can't really come out and talk to people but this other guy came out and he's done videos on YouTube of like hostage reactions to like situations and movies and stuff like that. But he said like, I was trying to get a shot. I just didn't have a line of sight. So not only is Lan Horiuchi like taking shots, but there's other guys like primed and ready, but they just luckily didn't have a good line of sight to get shots.
0: Right. Like Horiuchi wasn't, Just lone wolfing us. Yeah. The other snipers were all on the same page. They had talked about it before they even got all into position to try to coordinate shots to take Randy and Kevin out at the same time. Yeah. So, I mean, they were all under the impression that shoot right away. So this could have been a lot worse. Yeah.
1: Considering the circumstances. Right,
0: right. Back at the house, Sarah was dressing Kevin's wounds and doing her best to help make sure he would survive the night. At one point, Kevin was coughing up blood and doing so badly that he actually asked Randy to end his life with a shot through the head when he wasn't expecting it. Randy would not do this, and Randy's wound wasn't actually doing that great either. The only one to sleep that night was Kevin, but that was mostly from drifting in and out of consciousness from the blood loss. Throughout the night, Randy heard noises under the cabin, and he actually pounded on the floor until the noises stopped.
1: No, uh this is like the time when he like they hear noises throughout the entirety of this coming saga that we're going to go through. But this is when the FBI is starting to like try and attach listening devices to the house and stuff. So they're actively trying to be able to hear what's going on in the cabin. But at the same time, Randy's got a dead wife and a dead son and the FBI doesn't know about it yet. And so Even with these listening devices on the floor, it's not really going to work for them in any useful way.
0: Right. If they get the listening devices attached, they're probably still wondering why Vicky is so quiet.
1: Yeah. And Randy doesn't know if that's what they're doing or if they're attaching, like, explosives to the body. Like, like he doesn't have any idea, so.
0: Yeah. By the next morning, the blockade three miles down the road from where the Weaver (laughs) can't... Cue the Italian music. (laughs) By the next morning, the blockade three miles down the road from the Weaver cabin was tense. Vietnam veterans, white nationalists, reporters, and photographers all slept in their cars and were berating officers, threatening to come back and kill them. Not so much the photographers and yeah, reporters. I was just going to
1: say, not the reporters and photographers, but the other guys. Yeah, the
0: <laughs> reporters and photographers were there to document the killings, I guess. Oh, man. Going into the third day of the standoff, law enforcement agents hadn't done so much as hold a single press conference. So everything that the media is portraying is basically just speculation on their part.
1: Yeah, because they're just getting footage of all these APCs and all right. these like other personnel carrier trucks like driving and over the the bridge. Right, and they're helicopters like, everywhere. Yeah, and they're like, what is going on? Yeah, like, they had to have heard the two shots too. So it's they know something's happening.
0: Right, yeah, it's uh, hard to cover a sniper shot in the middle of the mountains in the middle of nowhere. But at this point, the FBI was worried that some of the white nationalists and other Weaver supporters would try and get up the hill to actually help the Weavers with reinforcements and weapons. Now, up at the top of the hill, the negotiations continued. Every 15 minutes, the FBI rang the phone and called for Randy to come out and give himself up, along with Kevin Harris. From eight thirty to four PM, the phone rang thirty four times without a single peep from the house.
1: Because the phone's outside the house. Yeah. It's not in because they can't get it in the house, obviously. Yeah. So
0: What did they expect the I like guess side tangent? Did they really expect them to just open up the door yeah, and go it, and answer a phone after right, like, with eleven snipers out there? Um,
1: Yeah, because Sarah said like any step outside this house, they're just like trying to they're just trying to lure us out to pick us off.
0: Yeah. Try to get them with the old uh, phone outside trick, (laughs) I guess. But and all the while, they continued to call out to Vicky and attempt to appeal to the family. So during this entire time, they're also shouting out the name of their recently Shot in the head, mother and yeah. wife,
1: and they're being like super fr- like fa- fun and friendly about it. Like they're like, yeah. "Oh, Vicky, why don't you bring the kids out so they can have a nice pancake breakfast and stuff?" It's just like they don't know, but at the same time, it's just like, Ugh.
0: right? It's like the weaver, the weavers basically think that the FBI is taunting them. Insult to injury, right? So. And that's why the FBI even had a remote control robot equipped with floodlights, microphones, and a shotgun arm. Talk about a BattleBot.
1: I want—I didn't see a picture of this, but I really should have looked one up because it sounds like just this crazy mechanical contraption. And it's a 1992, right. too. So it's right. Like, how good was this thing?
0: Its wheels were the same ones used on Hot Wheels, I yeah. believe. <laughs> They used the robot as a loudspeaker to try and talk to Randy, and back at camp, Dave Hunt heard the FBI using the information he had, got, he had gathered, some of which he had largely disregarded earlier in the case. For example, that the cabin was rigged with booby traps and explosives. The APCs were attempting to clear more room near the cabin for vehicles and better visibility for the snipers, so they thought perhaps they should get the shed out of the way. Just before running it over, Rogers stopped the APC and sent in agents who found the body of 14-year-old Sammy Weaver.
1: It's the one good thing that they've done so far is stop before they
0: destroy the shed. Right, check the shed. Yeah.
1: Like, they could have just absolutely destroyed Sammy's body in there without even knowing it, and then mm-hmm. just realized after the fact, like, oh, we done right. messed up real bad. That'd
0: be a big op. Fred Lansley thought Randy was killing his own kids at this point. The FBI asked that their first reaction is that they did it, right? (laughs) It's just the government, man.
1: And it's like, obviously the weavers aren't like blameless either. I mean, they decided to make the decision to stay up on their cabin and not Mm -hmm. come down and everything. And they were being stubborn about it. And they had, he had illegally sought off the shotguns like beforehand and, like, Vicky sent those letters threatening a congressman or whoever that was. Yeah. So it's just, like, both sides compounded all of these little mistakes. And obviously the Weavers are less at fault here right at this point than the FBI and law enforcement. But just, like, this
0: could have been avoided at so many different turns. Right. That's definitely the biggest, I don't want to call it theme, but if you take anything away from this, it's a lot of miscommunication. Like, this just led to deaths and... A lot of unfortunate things. Last psychological trauma for man. Law enforcement involved.
1: agencies competing with each other—that doesn't happen anymore.
0: Nice. <laughs> <laughs> the FBI asked what Randy wanted to do with Sammy's body, but with no response, they moved Sammy down to a shed a little further away from the cabin. They turned on the floodlights and beamed the cabin with white sheets of light. Inside, Randy shouted at the door that they killed his wife. Sarah took on Vicky's role, cleaning Kevin's wounds and gathering all the food. But the family was getting to a breaking point with the psychological warfare the FBI was using. For example, constantly calling out to Vicky, asking about the kids and taunting them. The next morning, and now this is at 7, the standoff is at 70 hours, Randy complained that he wanted the robot moved. He didn't want them to use it to punch a hole in the wall and to send in tear gas. Fred Lansley had missed Randy's shouting, and he continued getting no response from the cabin. He was getting frustrated. In his mind, Vicky was the head of the family, so why was nobody answering? Meanwhile, Wayne Manis, the man who was put in charge of fighting the Order about eight years earlier, had arrived at Homicide Meadow. The amount of agents here was about as many as there were on Whidbey Island which, if you remember from episode two, was a full-out assault contingent.
1: Yeah. So even he's surprised, like, by how crazy this has gotten.
0: Right, and the Order was basically a domestic terrorist group.
1: And they had actively destroyed buildings and robbed from federal And assassinated. Yeah, so it's like, they're a little more dangerous than a family on the mountain that just missed a court date.
0: Right, with two actual adults. Yeah. And the rest were just kids.
1: So by the next Monday, Gene Glenn held the first press conference since the standoff began, along with an agent named Mike Johnson. Gene Glenn broke the news that Sammy had been killed in the initial gunfire and that they had found the body the night before. They didn't say anything about the shots that Lon Horiuchi had taken, however. Mike Johnson also stated, What bullet killed Samuel Weaver is still under investigation. It's a possibility shots came from Harris's weapon. So they're immediately starting to vilify the family mm. in the eyes of the public, trying to say that, hey, maybe it wasn't us, might have been the other, the other guys up there that were trying to get out of the house.
0: Right, yeah, they're deflecting so that, most likely so that the people around them who were constantly shouting child killer and threatening them wouldn't go crazy. Yeah. Vicky's parents and her brother Lonnie and her sister Julie had
1: arrived in Sandpoint at this point. The FBI asked them to make an audio tape pleading with Randy to give himself up. And after the agents left, they saw the news that Sammy was dead. And naturally, they were heartbroken. Back in Iowa, Randy's parents were contacted by a reporter who told them that Sammy had died. And Wilma, Randy's mother, asked why nobody from the government had contacted them. So they found out through a news reporter. Which is just like how... Ter- or how tragic is that, that not only have you found out that your grandson died and was shot in a shootout, but you found out from a reporter.
0: Right, and the reporter was probably like, do you have any comments on your grandson's death? And yeah. And they're like, come again? Yeah,
1: it's just so sad. Yeah. And she said that she was just about to send him a letter saying how proud they were of him, but now she had no reason to. Meanwhile, over in the Swiss Paradise at the Deep Creek Inn with Lorenz, it had become a a pretty popular hangout for reporters and protesters alike, among which were a group of skinheads from Portland. And five of these men decided they were going to hop in a Jeep and attempt to go around the backside of the ridge to get ammo and guns to Randy. They were pretty quickly spotted by a helicopter and agents closed in on them and arrested them. And apparently one of the skinheads wet his pants while he was being captured. Very strong-willed men trying to help out this right. guy
0: just me and my buds going in a jeep
1: and this whole time this swiss guy is just like okay sure like you guys can hang out here i guess that's okay
0: right he chose the smallest town to set up his new life
1: literally and then he gets caught up in all this right so 96 hours into the negotiations the apc had trudged up and down the hill 27 times Running over the body of the yellow lab striker each time because nobody had bothered to move it.
0: That is just more extremely sad things.
1: Yeah, and it's just like that just shows the disconnect between how these agents felt about this. It's just like, we're just here to do a job. We don't care about the people or anything else. Right. Lancely then ironically opened negotiations by telling Randy that they fed one of the other dogs on the property spaghetti and mistakenly called Elisheba by the name Elizabeth. No response. Randy was done communicating if they were going to continue to bring up Vicky after he had shouted that she was dead. But things were starting to turn in the investigation when agents discovered seven shell casings from Deegan's gun, which put the Marshall story into doubt. The Weavers might not be as dangerous as they thought. Shocker. Mm-hmm. They still hadn't shot out of the cabin either, so they're not actively trying to assault the FBI. So the FBI finally changed their borderline murderous rules of engagement back to normal. And borderline is a very generous way to put it. Yeah, that's very generous. But talks had begun for a tactical approach to get the family out of the cabin by sending agents in with tear gas. So at this point, Lancelot is desperate to get communication for peaceful solutions started and he told Randy that he was going to send in the robot to the window, punch through the window, and drop in a phone, and then the robot would back off. Randy naturally shouted to get the hell away, and then a series of slurs and expletives. It wasn't positive, but it was the first communication that Fred had gotten from Randy. And inside the cabin, Kevin was starting to do a bit better, and was still hanging on, but still not doing great. The family had tuned into a radio station that simulcasted a Spokane news station, and they were happy to hear that protesters had gathered for them, but were upset that the news had called them white supremacists and Aryan Nation members. They weren't members of the Aryan Nation. They didn't want supremacy over other races, they just wanted to be separate, they just wanted to be left alone. Sarah decided she had to get get their story out before anything else went down, so she grabbed her mother's yellow legal pad and began to write. And once it was finished and signed by everyone in the family, she looked for the best place to hide it, where it would be able to survive a firebomb and hit it there. Because that's what the family thought was going to happen.
0: Right. Like, that's the amount of precaution that they're taking. That they were just terrified that there was going to be an actual firebomb yeah. thrown in there. And they
1: didn't want to be scapegoated. So,
0: Oh, right. Like, the government would probably totally vilify... They already were trying to vilify oh, them. yeah. They already did, like, through the news stations, because yeah. they were called... Um, area nation members which yeah. they just weren't right so they attend the meetings which wasn't great but they weren't members yeah so now we are 126 hours into the standoff randy yelled that he didn't want any goddamn telephone and ended his yelling with the word sister lancely finally got some com- communication going and randy said that he wanted to talk to his sister Fred said that he would get a hold of her, and Randy demanded she be allowed to come to the back door when she arrived. Eighteen hours later, on Thursday, August 27th, Randy's sister, Marnus, was brought up the hill. The FBI acted like they didn't know which door was the back door, and instead, Marnus began to call to Randy over the loudspeaker from the APC.
1: Oh, do you mean this door or that door? W- which door are you talking about? Right,
0: we've only been here for multiple days and have a vantage point on every single angle of the cabin. What door are you referring to? We only to? have 120 hours of regal surveillance footage from the marshals that we got over five months. That like, We have literal army tanks and army <laughs> helicopters yeah. here. We're unsure which, which door you are referring to, Randall. Uh. When he heard her voice, Randy yelled that Vicky was dead and the FBI was trying to cover up the truth but Marnus couldn't hear him. She had hearing loss from a loud factory job that she had. Randy gave up. They weren't going to let him get the news out that Vicky was dead, then he was done trying. The next day, at hour 168, Marnus went to another hillside with a parabolic microphone to help hear Randy's replies. But her impassioned speech and tearful pleading didn't get any response either. Fred Lansley saw she was exhausted and let her go back home and tried playing audio recordings of Vicky's family and announced that they had more tapes from a few other people, one of which caught Randy's attention. Bo Gritz. Gritz. Gritz? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Bo
1: Gritz. I thought it was Gritz, too. And when I was reading the book, there was a a little thing in there, because we're going to get into it, but he was a presidential candidate and i guess Wild. i guess some of the people that were there were just like grits it rhymes with whites and i was like grits does not rhyme with whites yeah. either these people are dumber than i expected or they just don't know how to say words <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but bo greits was a lieutenant colonel in the vietnam war cited 62 times for valor more than any other soldier during the war he was a green beret like randy and was rumored to be a model for rambo After the war, Greitz used the money of distraught widows and industrialist H. Ross Perot for his trips to Indochina. He said he was going to bring back abandoned POWs, but brought back only a box of bones, later found to be pig remains. He was heavily criticized after this apparent misuse of thousands of dollars from private donations, but his reputation grew among the far right, and eventually he ran for president of the Populist Party. Now fun fact kids the populist party's last candidate was former Ku Klux Klan leader David Duke.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Filling in a good role.
0: <laughs> that party just plays all the hits it's has just, all the uh the major players.
1: It's crazy to me that this guy who is like supposedly this all-star soldier and like perhaps a model for Rambo just turned out to be such like a demented piece of crap. Right, yeah, and it's so funny in all of the interviews that they have with him. This guy is so excited to even be a part of the story. Like you can tell, right. his face is like people are
0: paying attention to me still. Yeah, he's just psyched to be. He's just psyched to be like in the news cycle. Yeah, Great's appeared at the roadblock, announcing that he would bring Randy to surrender, but he wasn't let past because naturally he's just a dude. Yeah. He and his associates wrote up a citizen's arrest. I forgot about this part. He and his associates associates wrote up a citizen's arrest for Gene Glenn, who was the FBI agent that was in charge for twelve supposed felonies pertaining to the refusal to let Bo Grites negotiate with Randy.
1: Yeah, they just wrote this up in Lorenzo's inn and then walked it up to the roadblock and left a rock on a piece of paper and were like, Yeah, you see that? That's a citizen's arrest for that guy in there. It's just,
0: (laughs) I imagine it's on a napkin.
1: Yeah, probably.
0: And they're trying to arrest the head of the FBI. Well, not the head of, the entire head of the FBI, but the FBI man in charge of this case. Like, good (laughs) luck. They have tanks and so many snipers. But yeah, it, it wasn't (laughs) big. You gotta
1: respect the moxie. Right. The
0: confidence (laughs) is key, I guess, but so... Keep in mind, it wasn't because of this citizen's arrest, this announcement, that they let him go up to the cabin, but Gene Glenn was just out of ideas. So they rolled Bo Grites up to the cabin in an APC, and Grites yelled to Randy from the loudspeaker. When he asked if everything was okay, Randy said no. He had been shot, Vicky had been shot to the head, and Kevin had been shot in the arm and chest. Lanceley felt like he ran into a brick wall finally realizing he may have made things worse by constantly calling out for Vicky.
1: Yeah, they are the these negotiators that they interview in all of the interviews and stuff. It, they're the only ones that like seem like they show any remorse for what had happened because mm-hmm. they're they all say like we were devastated. Like we were trying to do the best job we could to appeal to the family and this whole time we were probably just making things worse. Oh
0: yeah. Literally rubbing salt in the wound. Yeah, Bo hopped out of the APC and inch closer and closer to the cabin, eventually getting right up to the wall and speaking to Randy through the wall. Randy told him, Bo, they shot Vicky, and they won't tell anybody.
1: Yeah, because this whole time, there's microphones attached to the bottom of the cabin. Mm-hmm. There's a robot that apparently has a loudspeaker and a microphone on it that they've gotten close to the cabin at this point. And they brought a parabolic microphone out to a hillside, and still could not hear that he was yelling that his family was dead. Yeah, so I don't blame him for giving up at that point, because you're just exhausted." So Friday night, a week after the initial shootout, standing in the light of the cameras, Gene Glenn held a press conference. He said, quote, "The three children are in good health. Kevin is all right, but he did suffer a wound. Randy is in good health. Unfortunately, Vicky is dead. Everyone in the crowd audibly gasped. And you can see a video of this in the PBS documentary. And protesters erupted. They thought that there was going to be violence. Skinheads shouted, we're going to war. There was prayer circles that broke and reformed, threatening at any moment to break out into violence against the agents at the roadblock. But luckily, things remained peaceful enough that nobody was hurt. The next morning, Lawrence Kaduff gave Bo and his three associates a care package to take up to the mountain with food and milk adorned with a small Swiss flag on the side as a sign of neutrality. Go, uh, right. I
0: love this dis- man. He's
1: so, he's the best. Like, the best right. character this whole time. I just love this guy that mm-hmm. he, he got involved and immediately starts being a, such a good guy. Bo went up the hill again with a woman named Jackie Brown in tow. She had been like an aunt to the girls, a very similar woman to their mother, Vicky. And when Sarah told Bo they weren't leaving because the FBI was going to shoot them the moment they stepped outside, he asked if they would let Jackie in. And the girls finally said yes. Jackie entered the house, refusing to wear a bulletproof vest she was offered, telling Richard Rogers, maybe if I wear it backwards, (laughs) which is just like... So She's not wrong. It's so <laughs> succinct, but it's so insulting to, oh. like, hear that. She, again, not wrong. No. Jackie went into the cabin on Sunday, Saturday afternoon. Immediately, the girls ran and clung to her and cried, and Randy recounted the story of what happened, and she gave them the care package from Lorenz. Meanwhile, Bo tried to talk Randy into letting him take Vicky's body out of the house, because at this point, it's been almost a week since she was shot. mm Bodies don't do too well just sitting out in the open.
0: Can't imagine having, oh my God, just a, not even a body, your mother's body, just well, in and, the same small cabin.
1: And Kevin's wound is infected. And the smell of that cabin. His father, her, her father has been shot. So Sarah's trying to deal with all of this. Meanwhile, yeah. the whole cabin smells like putrid. It's just.
0: There's a baby. Yeah. Also. Ugh.
1: Sarah really is just, like, such a strong woman, oh gosh, honestly. Yeah. Randy refused to let Bo take Vicky's body, and before Jackie left, Sarah gave her the six-page note that she had written their story on, and Jackie smuggled it out of the house. By Sunday afternoon, Bo went back up to the cabin again. Randy refused to let him in because Sarah didn't trust him, but eventually, Randy opened the door. Bo told the family they needed to let Kevin come out, and get treated, because if they didn't, Randy would be charged even harsher for not allowing them to save Kevin. And Kevin, at this point, made the executive decision to not make things any worse for the family, stood up under his own power, and walked out of the cabin. And Bo Grites' associate, Jack McLamb, had to help him, because Kevin was still not doing too great.
0: Lost a lot of blood.
1: Yeah. But Sarah said at this moment she had decided that Kevin was one of the strongest people that she'd ever met, because... She's still under the assumption he's going to walk outside and immediately get shot in the head. So. Right. Next, Jackie and Bo brought in a body bag. Randy cried as he helped, li- helped Bo lift his dead wife into the bag and watched them take Vicky out of the house. Bo eventually took Vicky over his shoulder and carried her out himself. The FBI was making progress, but Jackie was now cleaning blood in the house that was evidence, and Bo was allowed in and out without being searched. And eventually, when the door opened, Randy saw the robot outside again, and he saw now that there was a shotgun as an arm on this robot, and immediately the family did not trust anyone again.
0: Right. He did not like that robot at all.
1: No, because this whole time, he's just thinking that it's just got little arms that can like move around. He mm-hmm. doesn't know that there's a full-ass shotgun attached to this thing. Right. So negotiations were dying again, and tactical approaches started to be drawn up again. Monday was the last chance for peaceful negotiations. Bo and Jack McLam were wired up before they went up to the cabin, and the FBI told them that if negotiations broke down while they were inside, they should say code word Alaska into their wires and subdue the family. Then assault teams would barge in and bring the family out, hopefully avoiding any further violence. So Bo went back up to the cabin and told Randy that this was his last chance. But Randy and mainly Sarah, refused to leave. Bo talked and talked, and eventually Randy relented, and Sarah gave in to her father's wishes. And Monday, at a little after 12.15 p.m., the family finally came out. They all held hands as they walked down the mountain together. Randy was taken by helicopter, shackled and escorted by two armed agents to jail. The family, the rest of the family, the girls, was taken to a motel in Sandpoint to be with Jackie Brown and her husband. And eventually, the girls went to go live with Julie, Vicky's sister, who had the tough task of trying to reform these radical-minded girls and raising little Elishaba. Sarah was said to have regularly talked on the phone to skinheads that she had befriended, as well as reporters. Rachel was adapting a little better, but really wouldn't talk about what happened. And little Elishaba was said to be a whirlwind of a child. And every time she went over by Julie, she clung to her and stared at her eyes, thinking that it was Vicky, mm-hmm. which is just very sad,
0: right? It's a crazy end to one of the longest standoffs in U.S. history. Yeah, or fugitive cases, I guess you want to say. Um, I mean, thankfully, everyone went down the hill without additional casualties. But man, what a insane roller coaster of not even like only emotions, but just So much happened.
1: Yeah. And while they were walking down, the agents were, like, asking Sarah, like, are there booby traps in there? Or should we, like, be worried about anything? And she just, like, glared at them. She's like, you're scared, aren't you? And she's like, no, there's nothing up there. Like, I don't know why you guys are so scared of us. We're just a family.
0: Right. I honestly wonder what the reaction of the agents were when this family walked out, like, all together. Yeah. It was, so like, Kevin already had already walked out, but at the very ends with Randy and his just, his teenage children and his toddler walking out and there's like, we brought all of this, or like all these resources up for these people.
1: Yeah, and there's a, like a dramatization, like a movie that was made about this mm-hmm. and the actress that plays little Sarah comes out into the field and says like, all this for one family. Yeah, Which is like, yeah, it's cr- ridiculous. It's like a war zone.
0: Right. Tanks, helicopters. Yeah. Like double-digit snipers. Everything, <laughs> yeah. It's nuts. Yeah, it's, it really is a very sad situation. So now
1: right. we get into the after effects of all
0: this. Mm-hmm. So back at the Deep Creek Inn, everyone applauded our main man, Lawrence, when he walked in for his graciousness in hosting them throughout the standoff, but he himself kept his face down telling the reporters that they better report the truth of the story and do justice by the family involved.
1: And it was kind of interesting because, like, all of the people, at, like, all these skinheads and stuff were hanging out with black people that were there, and, like, the, like some of the reporters were there. Some of the agents probably were there. Mm-hmm. Like, all of these people now were just, like, hanging out, buddy-buddy. And so then he walks in and he's just like, I know you guys are having fun, but, like, you guys really need to do justice for the story because that family deserves it
0: right tell what actually happened the fbi fbi agents on the hill laid out all of the weaver's weapons quickly realizing that the family whose case started due to illegal weapons trafficking charges owned only legal firearms wayne manis the idaho fbi man was upset that the atf and other agencies didn't communicate and thought that this could have all been avoided if the correct agencies had communicated.
1: Yeah! yeah. You fucking think so.
0: Yeah, you think that'd be step one uh, when trying to arrest anyone, but especially just this family, Yeah, or just try to get like anything done with this family that, hey, what info do you have? But that's just quite simply not how our law enforcement agencies work.
1: But, yeah, you'd think they would have learned from this, but no, then they did the same thing, and that's how something like, I don't know, 9-11 kind of happened, because mm. nobody would talk to each other.
0: Right, yeah. Everyone just wants to make the biggest bust for their own agency, uh, for their own career. It's so frustrating. It's very sad when you... It's people's lives.
1: And, yeah. Yeah. Uh.
0: If you want to listen to uh, our gripes about the government, listen to our new podcast, The Gentle <laughs> Shitting of Our country. Listen to any episode that we've done. Honestly, we bring it up during the samurai episode. Yeah. <laughs> i'm just thinking of like the three different reports that the fbi atf and the u.s marshals would have for like us and our podcast like one's just huge fans yeah ones are like ah, oh, they're a little wordy and the other one is like no they are the next next greatest like national threat
1: yeah the one in the middle is just like the emoji of the guy with like both his hands up like <laughs> i don't know
0: <laughs> oh man kevin and kevin and randy were awaiting their trials in jail One of the terms for Randy to actually leave the cabin was that he would be represented by Gary Spence. Jerry. Jerry, I knew it as soon as I said it. Would be, cue the Italian music, would be represented by Jerry Spence, a powerhouse defense attorney in Idaho. And Jerry Spence did eventually agree to take the case, along with a small-time defense attorney named Chuck Peterson. David Nevin would defend Kevin Harris, and the three would work together as a team throughout the trial. On the other side was a young prosecutor named Ron Howen, a powerhouse in white nationalist convictions. Gary Spence agreed that him and... Jerry. Oh, my God. (laughs) Uh, It is spelled
1: with the Gs. I'll give you a little leeway.
0: But, like, I know words. (laughs) You're an adult. I can't keep
1: giving you excuses here.
0: (laughs) Oh, goodness. Thanks, private school. Jerry Spence agreed that him and Randy didn't see eye to eye on their political and religious beliefs, but he swore he would defend Randy fairly,
1: yeah, and the book does a really like thorough breakdown of the whole trial and stuff like that. We're gonna do like an overview. We're not going like super in depth on the trial because honestly, it's just a lot of like logistic stuff, so <laughs> right. it's not that exciting, so if you want to actually hear like more about these guys that are defending and prosecuting. Read the book, if you, and you can get a lot of good details in there.
0: Right, right, right. And
1: that book, again, is Ruby Ridge, The Truth and Tragedy of the Rand- Randy Weaver Family by Jess Walters.
0: Ron Howen decided to throw the book at Randy and Kevin, charging them with conspiracy charges, illegal weapons charges, and murder charges, equaling 10 in total. And when the FBI heard this, they were actually pretty upset. With the conspiracy charges, the FBI may have to present files proving they knew nobody in the cabin had shot after the initial standoff, making their use of excessive force a lot more suspect.
1: Yeah, and running theme, FBI is just going to try their best to not
0: say they had anything to do with this. Oh, they try to wash their hands of this at every single Oh, point. yeah. <laughs> Jerry Spence loved it, though. He knew this would turn into a trial trying to demonize Randy for his beliefs to cover up the gross misuse of power used by law enforcement rather than a trial to prove criminal charges. David Nevin went to the Weaver property, and as he thought about the case, he realized the whole trial could be summed up in one sentence. This was a case about a dog.
1: Which is true, (laughs) because the whole thing started over a dog getting shot, so... I mean, there's really not much arguing that, like, I don't know how you're going to really, like, say that the Marshals were right when you found all of this evidence (laughs) contradicting their stories already. Right. So it's just not good for them.
0: But Mm -hmm. In the courtroom proceedings, Spence played on the jury's emotions and made Randy look like a man trying to protect his family, speaking in an animated and performative fashion in his cowboy attire and grandfatherly voice. That's the perfect setup like, the perfect look for the lawyer. Jess
1: Walters just absolutely loves the fact that this guy dressed like a cowboy. He mentions Ooh. it at least, like, seven different times when he <laughs> talks about Jerry Spence. I wonder how
0: many times he just looked at, looked at the jury and was like, all right, now, y'all.
1: Probably a lot. Tipped his hat. Yeah. Because this guy, like, he would literally get so far off topic that the judge, like, started to get pissed at him by the end. He oh, yeah. was just like... You're asking a lot of questions that don't matter. <laughs> like yeah. you need to start staying on topic here.
0: And Spence was like, "Your Honor, Your Honor, Your Honor."
1: But that was like his whole thing. It's just like I—he played to the emotions of whoever he was, like defend, like the jury, pretty much. So, like, mm-hmm.
0: for example, like Spence told the jury that Stryker was so dangerous. They could beat you to death with his, with his wagging tail.
1: Oh, he's a good boy. Want some pets? I could just hear his tail hitting a washing machine and making the big grub noise. <laughs> the big yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. And most of all, Randy was the victim of entrapments in the ATF investigation, miscommunication from law enforcement for his original court date, and eventually they demonized Randy and his family after they realized their mistakes.
1: Their mistakes as in
0: law enforcement. Yes, mistakes. yes, yes, yes. David Nevin was your common everyman. He told Kevin's story and told the jury how the marshals botched the investigation, and he didn't want to see Kevin be their fall guy. He shot a marshal in self-defense. The marshals told their version of events, and the defense went back and forth with them. At the end of the fifth day of the trial, the jury, to- or excuse me, the judge told the jury not to pay attention to another event that was happening in Waco, Texas.
1: Yeah, which is just insane. The Waco compound siege literally happened during the Randy Weaver trial. This was just
0: this kind of activity. It was hot in the streets. It was just
1: destined for these two things to become intertwined in some way or another.
0: The 90s were kind of wild. Yeah. We do not talk about this enough. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're not familiar with Waco, um, that was when tanks were sent through the walls of the Branch Davidian compound and started a fire that killed eighty people
1: just in case you don't know what happened, but we'll and do it, a, we'll do a full series on that eventually
0: right, right. to summarize the rest of a long trial, the prosecution had a hell of a time trying to cooperate with the FBI in the case, who allowed blood samples to spoil for sitting too long. The FBI also refused to give documents and were not cooperating with other agencies really whoa that's like the fifth time i think that uh we've read that hey
1: fbi guy listening to this podcast right now to keep surveillance on us because we're covering a topic where you guys are idiots you guys are idiots yeah
0: <laughs> he's just like they got us yep yeah <laughs> this is just in, in the wall of shame
1: me and a group of my friends have a group chat and like anytime we say something suspect we say like fbi guy that was a joke right and at this point we've named our fbi guy so his name's larry so anytime <laughs> one of us says something like really dumb we're just like larry just don't don't mind that yeah
0: larry take a chill pill just jokes the defense did their job of proving why randy and vicky came to distrust the government
1: which was not our hard job
0: No. (laughs) I mean,
1: the government literally verified all of their beliefs Yep, as like one by one by one.
0: Yeah, time and time again, they showed that government's coming for your land. Yeah. They're coming for like your kids. And then they shot one of your kids.
1: Yeah. We were set up by the government and then the government vilified us, Mm -hmm. made a conspiracy against us, and now they are actively trying to kill us.
0: And now most importantly, the man that was riding in the helicopter that Lon Hori- Horiuchi claimed to be protecting when he shot at Randy and killed Vicky, said that he wasn't even over the ridge when the shots were taken. Weird. There
1: was no helicopter for him to shoot at. Isn't that just bonkers?
0: The government lie. <laughs> Horiuchi's drawings of the door with two heads in the window also arrived at the prosecution late. They had to present them after Horiuchi had defended himself well in court backtracking over his testimony
1: and Ron Howen the guy that's on the prosecution like he's a star studded like prosecution like trial attorney because his whole thing was like taking down white separatist guys mm-hmm. like he did some of the order trials and all that stuff so he's used to this kind of thing so he's like ah oh, we'll just throw the book at him we'll be fine like we've done this before and at this point, no, like the FBI is just not giving him anything, and this picture that he was supposed to get that Lon Horiuchi had drawn of what the event was showed like two little blobs in the window, proving mm-hmm. that he knew that there's people standing behind the window, mm-hmm. and someone had like mailed it just like first rate or whatever you want to say, like whatever the slowest shipping is to right. get it to him, and he's like. This is a pretty big case. You think that they would try and send this express at least, like
0: at the least express. <laughs> and at
1: this point, Rob, he's just like exhausted. Mm-hmm. And he, this guy that everyone used to see is like this vivacious, like ex- exuberant guy who is just roaring and ready to go. He's now like this defeated guy who barely looks like himself anymore. And by the end of the trial, he's not even showing up to court anymore because mm-hmm. he's just so exhausted. Right. So it's, it's bad for like everyone involved, except Jerry Spence and the, those guys. They have They're a gr- killing They're having a grand old time. <laughs> right.
0: Spence ended the trial by saying that Randy had lost his boy and his wife and would spend his life in jail to get them back. He had suffered enough. The jury deliberated for a full 20 days. And actually lost one of its leading members over halfway through.
1: And the guy that they lost was like this old guy who was, from the start, was just like, "I'm going to send these guys to jail." And then like, hmm. during all of the tri- like the jury deliberations and stuff, everyone just like, there's like three people that were like, "Yeah, this guy's got a point." And then the rest of them were just like, "You need to work with us here." Right. And then finally he just like... He was an old guy. He just got exhausted by it too, and just stopped showing up. So, because this is a long trial. Oh yeah, so, twenty
0: days deliberating on it,
1: and that's just after you sat through all of the trial
0: proceedings. So, mm-hmm. on July eighth, nineteen ninety three, the jury came to their conclusions. Kevin Harris was found not guilty on all five of the charges against him, including murder and manslaughter in the case of Billy Deacon.
1: Snaps. Woo! Go Kevin.
0: Randall Weaver was found not guilty on five of the most serious charges, including murder and harboring a fugitive. He was found guilty of failing to appear in court and committing crimes while on pretrial release.
1: And his crime was not appearing in court.
0: (laughs) To which he did not know the correct date.
1: Yeah. So you guys spent a lot of time trying to get this guy just to get him for not appearing in court. And you took Two of his family members for it?
0: Yep. Kevin Harris walked free after 10 months in custody. Randy went back to jail, and on October 18th, 1993, he was sentenced to 18 months in jail, 14 of which he had already served.
1: Yeah, and it's funny. It's in the book. Jess Walters is like, right after they announced that Kevin Harris was not guilty, his mom started like waving a cigarette at him because she's like, he hasn't had one of these in 10 months. He's probably craving. Right. <laughs> right.
0: He needs a hit but bad.
1: Th- yeah. But then he comes out of the trial and he's like so happy and he's just yeah. like, I, I just want to, uh, I, I want to say thanks to the the jury, I guess, for, <laughs> for doing what they did. Right.
0: <laughs> so- After four years and several millions of dollars, the U.S. government was able to charge Randy with failure to appear in court.
1: Worth it. Worth it. Tax dollars.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, we got (laughs) him. On on one of the least charges that we tried. (laughs) Right, yeah. On something he probably could have just... Millions of dollars in
1: 1993.
0: Yeah. Ten days after Randy's sentencing... Judge Lodge, who had been in charge of the Weaver-Harris trial, found the FBI in contempt of court and charged them $1,920. Nobody was punished severely aside from Gene Glenn, who was removed from his position, suspended, and transferred.
1: Yeah, and there was another agent, like a lesser agent, who spent 18 months in jail. I don't know exactly what for. I didn't really look into it. Scapegoat. But like, that's literally pretty much all that happened. Larry Potts didn't have, like, anything happen. I think he was suspended for, like, five days because he was saying, like, he didn't do anything. A man named Michael Cahill was under investigation because he literally shredded a file mm-hmm. that it was pertaining to the case. It's like, how how much more obvious can you guys make it that your hands are dirty and you're not taking responsibility for what you did? Like, just say you were wrong. It's not that hard. Like, you, the people mess up, even the government. But they can't look
0: weak, so... I've complained enough about the government today. Yeah. <laughs> On December 17th, 1993, Randy Weaver got out of jail and a couple days later moved to Iowa to be with his daughters. One of Randy's supporters from Florida actually paid his $10,000 fine. So he Pretty didn't nice. have to give up his land. There you go.
1: Thanks, Stephen Ayers. Yeah. <laughs> it all comes back to Steve. It literally does. Like I... In the trial, they're like, so you misquoted that, huh? And he's like, yeah, I guess I did. <laughs>
0: I wonder what he was doing that entire time. Like, was he like, oh, just, I, I messed up. Yeah, messed he's just
1: up. like sitting in his chair. He's just like, fuck, 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 yeah. fuck. <laughs> in August 1994,
0: four lawyers, including David Nevin and Chuck Peterson, filed civil lawsuits for the wrongful deaths of Sammy and Vicki Weaver. And a year later, settled for $3.1 million. $1 million went to each of the Weaver daughters. And Randy himself received $100,000. Kevin Harris himself received $380,000 in September of 2000.
1: I mean, it's a lot of money and the girls each got a million dollars, but it's like I they said in the primetime interview there's like I'd rather have my my brother and my mom back.
0: Right. Like, like no amount of money can just bring back someone that you love. Yeah,
1: it's just it's so sad cuz in every interview that you watch with the, the daughters, like even from whether it's from back then or from now, they're, they can't make it through telling all, any of this without crying. It's like it still hits as close to home as ever. Right. So yeah,
0: I'd be the same way. In 1995, a Senate Judiciary Committee opened hearings on Ruby Ridge. They found almost 40 pieces of evidence the other teams had somehow missed.
1: Just mind blowing.
0: 40. Yeah, and four D.
1: Three years after it, it's 1995. This happened in '92, and they're able to go back up there and they found 40 pieces of evidence that all of these quote unquote expert teams have, like have somehow missed, just
0: overlooked. They were probably two sites again. They're a little tank, <laughs> I guess. It's like no, we're playing soldier right now. We have no time to find do, the bullet that killed Sammy. Do our job. So, among these findings, like I just mentioned, was the bullet that actually killed Sammy. And it was from Larry Cooper's gun. But it could have been Kevin Harris. Could have been. (laughs) It's just another magic bullet type situation.
1: Uh, I just listened to, like, a six-part podcast on the JFK assassination, so the magic bullet is, like, fresh in my brain. Right.
0: (laughs) The committee also found that Lon Horiuchi was not acting in protection of the helicopter but was more inclined to shoot by the modified rules of engagement. His second shot was deemed unconstitutional and didn't even follow the modified rules of engagement. However, he received no punishment. Shocker. Randy lived with Rachel and Elishaba while Sarah finished high school in Des Moines. They moved to Montana for a short time, where the girls would end up staying. Randy moved back to Iowa and married a woman named Linda Gross and lived with her and her two kids. And as of that report from 2001, he has stayed relatively quiet aside from some gun show appearances. Sarah has done interviews and has said that she is glad what her family went through, as it is now a teaching tool for law enforcement on what not to do, which is insane to have that kind of... Not insane, but, like, you have to give her a lot of credit for having that type of attitude.
1: Yeah, and uh, the FBI, like revised the rules of engagement again after this Mm -hmm. like so that this wouldn't happen again right and they're like you guys can't shoot literally unless you know that someone is going to die Mm -hmm. and you have to identify your intent before you cannot just do it Mm -hmm. but yeah sarah is now a born again christian and so she has said in interviews like i forgive the people that were involved in what happened which is insane because that's the very big of her I mean it's taken her twenty years to do it, which is understandable, but I mean, even so, it's just it takes a lot
0: of courage and good good heartedness to do that to say I forgive you about the people I killed your brother and your mother in a l <laughs> in one of the most like highly publicized cases at the time, yeah, it's a lot of credit, yeah,
1: and she actually had the shed that uh Sammy was kept in. She has it on her property in Montana now. Oh, wow. Yeah. And the, one of the guys that she took there, you could see the hole in the door where the bullet went through Randy's arm through the door and then exited out the other side of the cabin. Yeah. So it's like, these guys weren't messing around. They were trying to kill this family. Right. So, right.
0: So Randy himself, he is now a grandfather of three. Or excuse me. Sorry. The 70-year-old Randy Weaver is now a grandfather, and all three of his surviving children are all working and have their own lives.
1: Yeah, and I'm pretty sure he moved back to Montana after that 2001. Correct. Yeah, because that was that was the most recent thing I found. But yeah, he because when Sarah was asked, "Do you still keep? Into, are you still close with your father and stuff?" and she's like, "Yeah, we all live close together. Mm-hmm. We still see each other." So.
0: Right, they all live now in Kalispell, Montana, according yeah. to eCelebrityFacts.com. <laughs> very reputable source. Yeah, now that I uh, read that out loud, but they're all in Montana.
1: But yeah, they they just are glad to have the family that they still have and are very thankful for the new families that they've made because now Sarah is married and has kids of her own. So mm-hmm. yeah, as happy of an ending as I guess you can have after something like that. Right. So Yeah. Yeah, that uh, pretty much concludes the our, our story on Ruby Ridge, the a tale of an all-American Iowa family turned radical separatist, ending in the deaths of three innocent people and paving the road to an eventual disaster that would claim the lives of almost 200 more. So, like I said, we will continue this saga eventually with Waco and then Oklahoma City, but this is just the uh, the first piece of the puzzle and quite the piece it is.
0: Yeah, quite the piece. I also love how you were like that. Pretty much concludes the story as we've done. It does on Ruby Ridge, yeah.
1: Yeah. But yeah, we've done almost five hours now. So I mean, this is definitely our most in-depth series. But right,
0: right, yeah, definitely. Hope you guys liked it. Um, Just kind of reflecting on, or I guess not reflecting, decompressing on everything we've talked about and researched. It is truly mind-boggling that our government agencies look out for themselves first and foremost. Oh yeah. Instead of looking out, as you can see in the terms of this case, for the people that they're supposed to be supposed to protect. Yeah. And also competing against each other like they're like two or three fortune five hundred dollar companies. Yeah. Trying to sell a new product. <laughs> it's mind boggling. My
1: coworker and I actually talked about this concept today because he's a uh, he's an army veteran, and we were talking kind of about like how people view the government as this all encompassing like all knowing body, and he was like, "This just I just blows my mind that people think that because from my like firsthand experience in the army, half the time they don't know what they're doing themselves, mm-hmm. so like." the people that have these huge government conspiracies that they're going to like take over the world. and They're planning this huge thing. It's like, I don't think they can get out of their own way half the time. So you're really putting a lot of faith in these people.
0: (laughs) It's really just people like, like us that just have a unbelievable amount of power to ruin the lives of, of citizens. Now that's the last complaint I'll make (laughs) about our government.
1: But Jess Walters in the PBS documentary had an interesting quote that I thought was kind of, it kind of encompassed our coverage of this where he he said, as I covered this story, it became less about who is to blame for everything Mm -hmm. and more so about how this all-American family somehow ended up in this situation and became this radical separatist group who ended up being an opponent of the FBI. And that's pretty much how we looked at it too. I mean, I I mean, that's probably because he wrote the book. So that's, that's his writing and his attitude towards it coming out. But Mm -hmm. yeah, it, it is a wild story.
0: And it's one that when I first started, when you first suggested it and I first started doing research on it, like I really didn't know anything about it. Me We talked about it during episode one as well. We just, don't really talk about this incident too much. Yeah. And it's still used today, like we mentioned, as a rallying cry for anti government militias, anti government groups, Aryan nation groups, the big three, I guess.
1: Yeah. It's still a very much a far right rallying cry.
0: Right. Because right.
1: I, I was scrolling through the comments on some of the documentary YouTube videos, and like, there's definitely multiple people saying like, yeah, it's it's those loons on the left that are causing all this. I'm like, I just think it's the government being dumb.
0: Right. <laughs> it's like us chilling on the left. It's like, we didn't want this. <laughs> it's just like,
1: I'm just here. Right. I'm, I have no political side either way. Like, I I don't care what you guys do. Politics suck. So.
0: Yeah. <laughs> like, we put our... Uh, I said I was done ranting on the government. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, we, don't, we try not to get political on this show because you guys can believe whatever you guys want to out there. Mm -hmm. Just don't push it on other people and don't be dangerous with it as we've said in the past. So
0: multiple times,
1: but yeah, that, that is the end of Ruby Ridge.
0: Thank you guys for sticking with us through this story. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via our social medias. So you can find us on Twitter at gems underscore pod. You can find Jacob at Jacob from Wisco and myself at Wodevskis. You can also find us at Instagram at gems underscore of underscore history underscore podcast. And then finally, on the old clock app, the TikTok You can find us at Gems of History Pod. People start opening the clock app, and they're like, "All, <laughs> like,
1: the, all this has a stopwatch timer,
0: <laughs> alarms." Just for whatever reason, there's a fifth option. For Gems of <laughs> History, History. We're
1: infiltrating your phones in every way possible. Right,
0: just like the government. Hey, One last. Look at one. this guy. One last one. Yeah, uh, People are going to think I'm very anti-government. I think I need to walk that back. Yeah, we're
1: we're, we're going to be like, ah, oh, these guys are super radical anti-government. We're just like, no, the government fucked up in this specific scenario and right. we wanted to talk about how bad they did.
0: They just assume I'm wearing a beret of some sort <laughs> as we record this. But no.
1: Yeah, if you guys uh, want to get in touch with us uh, via, via email, we're always looking to hear from you guys. You can email us at gems podcast at com. And we might have some uh, exciting news for you guys coming up pretty soon. So we're going to be working on some stuff in the next mm. in the coming days. So that's exciting for us. So depending on how that all goes and when we get done with that, you guys might be getting some new updates from us. So a little treat. Look at us go! Ah, new year, new us. Yes. But Absolutely. We will still remain the Gems of History podcast and we'll still give you all of your anti-government news because the government's
0: the worst. <laughs> I would slam I would slam on the table right now but it would just probably break everything in <laughs> our low budget studio here.
1: But yes, everyone have a great week. We love you and we're happy for you guys to be staying with us throughout a full year and on now. So Oh my gosh. Adios until next time. We'll hopefully have something more lighthearted next week. <laughs> <laughs>